faith is this, what the Bible gives us the definition of what faith is in, in Hebrews 11, 1. Faith is the substance of things not seen but the, uh, and the evidence of things hoped for. And so we, the Lord hates the day when faith shall be sight, when we see him for the first time. And the Bible says, t- tells us that in 1 John chapter 3. It tells us simply that we shall see him as he is. Uh, and the clouds be rolled back a scroll, and a trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend even so. In, in this last phase, it is well with my soul. You've got to understand who it was that said that, who wrote that. A man by the name of Spafford. And this was after he had put his, he, he was the, the, the uh, praise and worship leader for Moody. And Spafford, they were on their way to Europe. And he had sent his, he had sent his wife and his four daughters ahead to Europe then he was going to come on a ship at that time. There was no airplanes. And the ship crashed, and his wife was saved, and he got a message back from his wife that says, oh, save, and all the message says was saved alone, four daughters. And he got to the place, when he came to a place of, of um, he got to the place, he told the captain, when you come to the place where that ship went down, I want you to come and let me know. And, and the captain came and got him, and he went out and he looked at it, and he went back to his his uh, uh, went back to his stateroom, and this is what he wrote: "It is well with my soul." How in the world could it be well with your soul when you've lost four of your children? Because we know there's something better. Because we don't mourn as those who have no hope. You know, you could lose your job. You could have all kinds, just like I told you in, in my prayer, we need to be praying for those 300 people that's lost their job at League and Platt. I'm telling you, that's going to be a, an unbelievable thing uh, in Winchester. That company has been here forever. 300-something people. I think it's around 330 people is what Bob told me. But, you know, uh, and, and you, listen. If you want God to bless the community, if you want God to bless, this is what we've been going. I've never gone to the, and I'll say this, I've never gone in front of the commissioners down there to speak against some of the things that's happening in this town that I spoke against them being moral problems. I've never done that. I've gone to them and told them that because of alcohol and the other things that are happening in this county or happening in this city was because of one thing. If we want God's hand on us, if we want God to bless us, we've got to be willing to glorify Him. And we're fixing to take all the way from the place of uh, um, the corner of Main Street down here, Lexington Avenue, all the way up here to Depot Street and make it an entertainment center. And so now when they told us in 2019 that they wanted to pass alcohol alcohol on Sundays, that it would only be somebody coming into the restaurant and having a little glass of wine with their food. And that can happen. That didn't happen until after 2 o'clock. They changed it to 10 o'clock. I went there again, telling them what was 10 to 11. 10 to 11 was our people go to church. That didn't, that's not enough. Now we're passing a thing where people can come out on the street with their drink and walk up and down Main Street. And so why should we wonder that all of a sudden we've got one of the largest uh, manufacturing companies in our town that we're losing. Ah, well. 
get over it, Lee, they say. Okay, so anyway. But, so, well, let me get into other things here. Let me, let, let's have some good news, okay? And one Sunday morning, one Sunday morning, a, uh, a mother went in to wake her son to tell him it was time to get ready for church, to which he replied, I'm not going. Why not, she asked. I'll give you two reasons, he said. One, they don't like me down there. And two, I don't like them. His mother replied, well, let me give you two good reasons why you should go to the church. One, you're 54 years old, and two, you're the pastor. So. <laughs> well, I, 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 you know, when, when we got these kind of things, you don't know what you, you have to, you know, and I, I feel like this is what the Lord wants me to do today. And so I want you to turn. We go all the way back to the book of Genesis. And I want to talk to you today about how Christ changes things, how Christ changes Listen to what it says in Genesis 1, verse 31. It says this, And God saw that everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. God saw that everything he'd made was very good. Then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, listen to what it says. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God entered his work from which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his works which he had done. And God, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created. Then also go to, uh, uh, then also go to Genesis 3, verse 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had, had, had made, and he said to the woman, Has God indeed said to you, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, or shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate also. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you, Father, today that the Bible teaches us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That we thank you, Father, for your, your, your immutability, that you never change. And we pray, Father, today that we would speak from your word, not what we want, not what the world says, but what your word says. May we believe in your word and may we trust in it that it is the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, uh, unchanging word of God. May we come to the place, Father, that we know that it's thus saith the Lord what really matters. That heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will not. Be with us, Father, we pray. We ask this, Father, in the name of Jesus. But, Lord, as we do this, we pray that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart will be acceptable in thy sight. For you're our strength, you're our redemption. You have to be everything for us, Lord. Be with us, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. 
as we enter 2024, I'll be honest with you, the outlook is not real good. It's bleak, and it's not very positive. As we enter into this presidential time, this portion of this week that's coming, we know what we're going to hear. All we're going to hear is negative stuff. All we're going to hear is, is those people that's what's wrong with the other guy, and, and we're going to hear empty promises. So our whole lives are going to be flooded with discouraging types of statements, depressing stuff is all. And this one did this, and this one did this, and, and that just seems like it's all there. But as Christian people, here's what we've got to realize. How does Jesus change all this? If, we're, if we belong to Jesus, if, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, that are the precepts in our life, the things in our life that we want to emphasize and that we want our kids to emphasize, we, that we'll, you know, those things that are there, does it make a difference that we follow Jesus Christ? Because the world that we're in is really, we're, the Christian church is being attacked like never before. The Word of God is being attacked like never before. And we hear, you know, we hear so many things about how, and you know, you, you can go on some of these things, they're, they're trying to, they're always looking for something that they can disprove, that can disprove what the Word says. But how do we know that Christ changes everything? The reality is that everything that we know about is really broken. It's really broken. The, the environment that we live in. And we all realize that there's just something that has gone terribly wrong in this world. And we can all agree on that. There's just something that's just not flux. But... Where we disagree is on what has gone wrong. Because the answer to what we, the answer to, to what we radically, the answer to that will radically change our life. So it makes a great difference as to what we believe has gone wrong. And so, so you know, if we will be in Genesis 1 through 3, but we'll spend the majority of our time in Genesis 3 which I got to tell you is the least happy of all the verses in the Bible. So what we hope to accomplish is to come to a true meaning of what the gospel is. Now what's the gospel? The gospel is the good news. And even though there are Christians walking around with a sourpuss look on their face, don't act like they know the good news, but it's the good news. The gospel is the good news. But here's something to consider. For news to be good... It has to invade bad places. Let me say it again. For the good news, good news has to invade bad spaces. For news to be good, it has to invade bad places where there is some anxiety or some fear or some bad things going on. So that's the only way that we can have good news. So when you get to the report from the doctor that you're okay, that's good news. Or ask somebody to marry you and they say, yes, that's good news. It's good news because there was a chance. Why is it good news? Because there was a chance that things could go wrong. 
So in order for us to, uh, to understand the good news, we first have to understand the bad news. And so it's very important how we come to a place that we understand what really is, if we feel this way, why is it bad? So just to adjust our bodies and expectations, today is a bad news day. So, so if you came today just to leave happy and chipper, you picked the wrong weekend, I pray. So we're going to start with the bad news, and then we'll go to the good news, and we'll look at all the, and it'll look all the more glorious. Where we actually live today, you and I, we live in the bad news. That's where we are. I mean, it, it, it comes to the place and the point we, we see things happening and we can't, how in the world can this happen, whatever, it's because we're living in those bad news. We're, we're look, and we look all, and it looks all the more, you know, and, and so as it, it's in the world as God created. It's not the world that God created. Let me say it again. And I hear people ask the question all the time, well, how could God, how could God allow some of the things happen? How could God allow uh, children to be hurt or harmed the way they do? How could God allow what happened over in, um, in, in Israel on October the 7th? How could God, and they, when they went in there and, and I even heard, even heard that a lot of those guys that went in there had to actually have to take drugs in order to do some of the things they did to kill the babies and, and, and the innocent and burn houses down. And, and uh, they also think, you know, a lot of people are talking about how how that, you know, the Palestinians, oh, they're so innocent in it. Well, they found out that one of the places that they went in, why was it that this house was burnt and this house was burnt, but this house was not burnt? Because they had basically told Hamas some of the things that were happening, where the people were and other things like this. But when you look at that whole situation and people ask the question, well, you talk about God being loved. If God is loved, then how in the world could he allow, if he is omnipotent and, and he's in control and all this, how could he allow those things to happen? There's an answer. What is it? The answer is simply this. This is not the world that God created. We just read it. What did he create? He created a world that was absolutely perfect. He created a world where there were none of those things. And that's why if you're going to start talking about this stuff, then you've got to go back and take what the Word says. And the Word says that in the beginning he created things and it was good. He not only says it was good, he says it was very good. So this, the world that you and I are living in right now, you say, well, then why in the world, and I've done this before, but I'll say it again, why did he put that other tree in there? If he only put that one tree in there, man, we'd have been good to go. If he just put the tree of life. Why did he put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because what we got to, you got to understand that God wants you to love him. But in order for love to exist, what's got to happen? It's got to be put in a framework of what? Where that we have free will. So God knew when he created, the Bible says he was preparing Jesus to come before the world was ever even created. Why was he getting ready? Because he knew what you and I were going to do. He knew what Adam and Eve was going to do. Then why would he do it? Because he wants you to love it. And he wants you to love him, not because you have to love him. He can do that. He can do all. He could create a world where none of this stuff exists. He could, he could create a world where you're a robot and just do what he wants you to do. He could have done all this stuff. But he didn't do that. No, he created a world where that you're free. 
A person can literally be born into this world and go from, and go from the, the time of birth all the way to till they die and not give God the time of day. He'll let you do that if that's what you want to do. But he created to, for us to understand that he loves us and cares, cares for us. And so we live in that time of, of, of bad news. We live in the world that you and I are living in, a world as God, we're not living in the world that God created. And so in Genesis 1-2, the triune God of the universe, God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in perfect contentment in the Godhead. Let me say it again. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were in perfect contentment in the garden. Because, you see, the, the Trinity, it, it literally did this. In, in the overflow in their love... And the affection that God the Father had for God the Son, God the Holy Spirit had, and they're one in this, the love they had and the affection for one, and to the canvas of creation, and created all that was good. Now, many people say this. They say, well, God created, what did he create us for? He created us for fellowship. I don't believe that. God didn't create us for fellowship. But I don't believe what, because that's not what, I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches fellowship is a component of God's created will. Absolutely, yes it is. But it is, why did God create, did he create us for fellowship? No, he didn't create us for fellowship. Why? Think about what, what that says about God. It says this, for, if you, you'd have to change Genesis 1-1 to say, in the beginning was God, and God was kind of bored, and, and he was lonely, and so he created man. That's what you'd have to say. He was all alone. He wasn't anybody to talk to. So out of the overflow of his power, he began to create. Listen, the trained God of the universe in glad, perfect contentment within the Godhead overflowed out of that. And as, and as, a, result, uh, as a result of that, he created us he, on, on the canvas of creation. Is that not like, you know, it's just like this, like here's sex, sex to... Two people so in love with one another that what do they do? They produced a baby. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, so in love with one another, created you and I. He didn't create us because he had to. He created because he wanted to. He didn't create you because he needed you. He created you because he wanted to, because he loves you and cares for you. That's what he did. And here's what we know, that God the Father is the author of creation. He says, and, and notice this, he says this in Genesis 1, 26. He says, let us, did you see that? Let, he says, then God said, let us make man in our image. What does he mean, let us? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Let us, that's who he's talking about. He's talking about the, the Trinity. That, it means he was talking to somebody. When he said let us, he didn't have some kind of disorder. No. We know that God the Son is active force of creation. Listen to what the Bible says in John. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. Who's he talking about? Talking about Jesus. He was right there at the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was not made. Now, so Jesus was part of creation. He, th those people that try to take him and make him into a god or what, you know, like the, the Mormons or whatever, they try to make him into a god, everybody becomes a god. That, that's false. Jesus was born. That baby in the manger was God. 
He was God. So you have God the Father, who is the author, God the Son, who is the active force, because Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, listen to this, by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He's in control of everything. And, and, by, and, and this, you know, the same thing that I think about what it says in Hebrews 1.3. In Hebrews 1.3 it says this. It says, Who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. He upholds all things by the word of his power. What does that mean? That means everything that you see, this building, the seats, everything, everything around you, even you, would, would absolutely implode and go everywhere away. Why? If Jesus didn't hold it together. This is why his word is so important. God said and he created. And when God says to you that if whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, he means it. He cannot go back on his word. He will not go back on it. Everything he's created is, is the substance of the word. And Jesus said that everything that we see, we put so much emphasis on, is going to pass away. But he said, my word will never pass away. And God the Holy Spirit shows up in Genesis 1-2 because look, listen to what it says in, in, in Genesis 1, um, 1, and, 1 and 2. It says simply that the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's not some impersonal force. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. You, 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 so what does that say to me? Here's what it says to me. You weren't an accident. Amen? You were not an accident. God deliberately created you. In other words, I don't care. Maybe you had a terrible childhood. And maybe your father was one of the people that just, you know, your father was somebody that was just awful or whatever else. Maybe you even went through child abuse. Maybe you were born out of wedlock, whatever. It doesn't matter. God created you. He created you. And, and you were not an accident. God knew you before you ever The Bible even tells us in the 139th Psalm that he knew you while you were still in your, mama's, in your mama's womb. And not only does he know that, the Bible also says this. Think about this. He says in her ninth Psalm, and I'm going to paraphrase this, but all your days were laid out in front of him before you were even one day old. Well, what does that mean? That means simply there's not a situation, there's not a circumstance, there's not anything that you can ever walk through that God doesn't already know about it. Not only that, the Bible says in Isaiah and Jeremiah both, it says simply that he goes before you. I don't care. What, if, if you're on a cot and they're, they're, they're pushing you through the door to go in to have an operation, listen, God's waiting for you on the other side. He will not leave you or forsake you, but you were an accident. Now, the Holy Spirit is, imperson is the impersonal presence of God that brings life to where there is no life. Jesus said, except a man be born of the water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of heaven. We know this because the word Spirit is the same word for breath. What do you mean? 
What was God doing when he did with Abram? Remember Abraham and Sarai? It wasn't Abraham, it was Abram, and it was Sarah. It wasn't Sarah, it was Sarah. But what did God do? When he told them, when Jesus shows up and he tells them simply that you're going to have a child. And what's Abraham? Abraham's 100 years old. She's 90 years old. And they go, oh, that ain't going to happen. You know? But what does he do? He breathes on them. Because you see, the Holy Spirit is the breath. And so when you look at the Hebrew language, the H, because the, they changed from Abram to Abraham, and the hum is the power and the breath of God. And when God breathed upon Abraham, Abraham, he became Abraham. And when she became no longer was Sarah, she became Sarah, they were able to have a child. Because of the breath of God breathed upon them. That's what the Holy Spirit can do. He, he's done the very same thing in your life. When you came to Jesus and you opened up your life, he breathed upon you where the Holy Spirit entered into you and you became a living being that's going to live for eternity. That this mortal must put on immortality and this... this uh, uh, you know, so the mortal must put on immortality, and this corruptible must put on incorruption. He breathed upon you. And you follow that through in the Old Testament, like Job 33, 4, it says, So what brings life? The Spirit of God. How are we born again? Does not the Holy Spirit invade our life, and we're made alive? And we were dead in our trespasses and sin, and we all of a sudden, as a result of that, we're made, we're made alive? God forms the man and he breathes into him and made him alive. He lives. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, out of the overflow of their... Listen to this. Oh, I want you to get this. Out of the overflow, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, out of the overflow of their contentment begins to paint and their love begins to paint on the canvas of creation. Is this not better than evolution where you came out of manual goo? Huh? That you had to come out of a bunch of mud and you crawled up on the lane, then you became a crawdad, and next thing you know, crawdad, you became a monkey. <laughs> you know? Now, I've met a few people that maybe, you know, I begin to wonder. <laughs> but no. And so, uh, you know, so here's what we know that it's good. But not only good, but very good. In other words, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, man, they nailed it. They nailed it. And so the results there is, is here it is, there's a rhythm to it. There, there, there just seems to be a rhythm to what God did. You know? He wants to do the very same thing in your life. He wants a rhythm to your life. He don't want it to be disturbed or things you, you, you may look at things and think boy what God's doing listen he wants that rhythm in your life that rhythm in your life and so uh, there's that rhythm as established in Genesis 1 and 2 and it goes something like this God created this and God created this and it was good it, and it was good and it was very good God created God created and when you read it in the Hebrew it literally reads a rhythm Mathematically, in the Hebrew, it's, there's a rhythm to it. So you got this trying God creating on the canvas of creation, painting a world that is not the world that you and I are inhabiting right now. 
In the middle of this spectacular creation is the Hebrew word shalom. What does it mean? Peace. Peace. You know, when Jesus came back from the resurrection, what's the first word he used when he looked at the disciples? He said to them, peace be with you. You know, that's where we're heading. We're heading to peace. We're, we're peace in your life and peace in your very being and things. So you got this, this, this God that's created this. And, and, um, and so creation is a perfect peace. Why? Because there's a rhythm to what God does. And, I, and you think about it, you know, the Bible also says that, that God is not the author of confusion. Why? There's a rhythm to it. He wants that rhythm in your life. He, he wants you to be able to, if you trust him, he'll help you to see around the corner. That's what he wants to do. And, and so if you've ever gone to a real concert with an orchestra, and they're down there in the orchestra pit tuning up or whatever, you know, and, and boy, they sound awful. No rhythm, nothing. Guys over here blowing or whatever, you know, whatever. You know, and, and it almost, I don't know if you ever watch Andy Griffith very much, but I mean, I do. And, and when you do, I love the, the one story where the, 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 the church choir and, they, and Barney's trying to sing in the church choir, and, and, um, uh, and, he, and, uh, and he's really singing off-key and everything else. You know, he is. And, and so the, the minister or the choir director goes to him and says, somebody's, off, somebody's singing off-key. He's trying to say to Barney. And what, what does he say? He says simply the fact that he says, well, he says, uh, let me find out who it is. And he's going around listening to everybody. And when the truth matter, it's really him, you know. And... And, and, and that's, that's exactly what we're saying, that, that as a result of that, uh, you know, it's the rivet and the harmony, you know, is there. And so, you know, and so the Bible sort of puts it in rhythmic terms. God created harmony, everything in harmony. And, and when the Bible says in the fullness of time, he sent forth his son. And that's the same thing we got to understand in our prayer life. In our prayer life, why does God make us wait? Because he knows exactly when that thing should happen and when it shouldn't happen. Now, and what we've got to under, what we, what do we got to do in order to wait? We've got to come to the place that we know that we really understand that God really loves us more than anything and that he loves us and he will also he, he's not going to, the Bible says, no good thing will he withhold from you. He's not going to do that. But we've got to trust him and wait on him because there's a rhythm to what he's trying to do even in our lives, even today. In this unrhythmatic world, you know. I don't know if you ever danced with somebody that couldn't then keep time or whatever else. You know, they wanted to lead. When the, that's about what we're trying to do. And so he takes a man and he, he takes a woman and he puts them in the garden of perfect harmony. And he gives them one rule. He didn't give them ten. If you'll notice, when Jesus is asked about commandments, when commandments, one of the things he says, he says this. He says simply, he's, he gives you, he says, what's the greatest commandment? Love your, love your neighbor as yourself. What's, what's after that? Love the Lord your God. He just brings it down to two. One of the things you learn in coaching, the more rules you got, the more trouble you're going to have. You know, you try to make all this thing, right, rules to do all this kind of stuff. And so, and so the, the whole point of what, what I'm, what I'm, what I'm am, am trying to say here, I'm just trying to say simply that he had one 
cotton picking rule. Don't eat of the tree. Don't eat of the, of the tree. You know, it's kind of, you know, uh, you know, one rule. Not like it's, you know, it shows respect that could be interpreted a million. You know, it's not like he says, okay, show respect. Well, that could be interpreted a million different, million different ways. No, it's kind of clear cut. Don't do this. Here's the rule. Genesis 2, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 and, and through uh, 15 through 17, he says to them, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden and then to keep it. And the Lord God commanded to the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it you shall surely die. That's what he says. One rule, not complicated. God has created this rhythmic, beautiful thing. Here's what you got. You got a naked man and a naked woman put into a perfect world. There's no death. There's no disease. There's no pain. There's no shame. There's no sorrow. And God says, be fruitful and multiply. Be my viceroy. Be my icons. The, the whole world is yours. Just don't touch that cotton-picking tree. And really don't eat of it. You know that's not a heavy-handed. That's a pretty sound deal. One rule. So in Genesis 1, verse 2, here's Eve walking in the garden and her dumb, passive husband is with her and the servant starts lying to Eve. The devil presents a lie like that today. And we buy into it. What's a lie? Did God say? That's the lie. And it's the same thing that we hear today, that what are we doing? We're trying to, you know, people trying to change the Word of God. There are people saying you don't need the Word of God, whatever. You know, you, you, couldn't, have the, you, you, know, you couldn't have the fruit on the tree. We'll die. No, that's not true. Doubting God's Word. He just knows that if you will do that, you'll have the knowledge. He, he, Satan is telling Eve, he says, listen, he, he's... You can't count on God's word. He just knows that if you do that, you'll have the knowledge he has, and you'll be better than God he is. In other words, what's he saying? He's saying the same thing that people believe today, that God is withholding something from you. And I've said it before. There's many people today that in their prayer life have a, have a, have a blind over their face. Why do they have the blind? Because they prayed about something, and God didn't answer it in the time that he wanted or in the place he wanted it, and as a result of that, they're mad. And that's why the Bible says in, in Hebrews, it says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us. Well, what's the sin that so easily besets us? We, we, this, here it is. We believe, we believe that God has done something. He, he's mad. We're mad at who we mad at. We're mad at God. He didn't do it. Why did I have to go through this? I have people come. I just don't understand why, why I have to go. I, what have I done wrong? What, you know, what God's doing is to, listen, God's not doing it to you. If we, if we not live in the way he wants him to, he'll raise his hand off of us. He won't leave us, but he'll raise his hand. And if he raises his hand off of us, boy, Satan sees that and he moves in. He moves in. And so, so you know, he's, but what's the whole point? The whole point is that Try to create a situation, Satan loves to do this, that God's withholding something from us that we deserve. And by the way, while Eve is doing this, Adam is standing right there. What's he doing? He's probably saying this. You know, look at the birds up there. You see that pigeon? I named that pigeon. That's probably what he's saying. He, he's, he's totally, you know, he, he's just totally oblivious to this. 
and, you know, his wife is being lied to. What's he doing? He's letting lies come into his house. How they come in today? Come in by the internet. They come in by people and other ways of things. And you, you know, we need men to stand up and be spiritual leaders within their home. Your kids know that, that, you know, we're so afraid of our kids. Well, they won't like what they want. Who are they? Are they the ones that are leading your home? Or are you the one leading your home? Sometimes you've got to tell your kids, no, we're not doing that. No, you know, we, we, no. It's, that's a, a great word to learn to be parenting. Just learn the word no, you know. You know, and so when you do, you know, just, so no. What's, what's trying to invade your home? We as men have failed miserably in being spiritual leaders in our homes. What are, what are you allowing into your home? And Eve sees it's pleasing to the eye and takes it and eats it. And then she hands it over to her dumb husband, Adam. And Adam, no question. Yeah, well, I'll take a bite. You know, he does it. And at that moment, out of right rebellion is declared against the king of glory. And the cosmos begins to fracture. And all of a sudden, the rhythm begins to change. You know, I want you to think about something. We live, in, we live in such a sensuous time. Now I want you to get a picture. Men are being tried to drag away to, to either commit fornication, well, commit adultery. But I want you to get a picture. What we, what we don't realize, we don't realize how that's going to affect other people how it affects other people. And I want you to see a picture. And here's what I want you to see. I want to see a picture of you sitting down and you look into your wife's eyes that you love and care about and you have to tell her you've had an affair. You know it's going to break her heart. And you're going to hurt her so bad. Same thing, the same thing goes the other way, too. This, this is what Satan wants to do with your family. Does it all just happen all at once? No, it just comes by little bits and bits and bits. So she hands it to Adam, no questions asked, you know. And that right rebellion, the rhythm changes. And I'm telling you, when that happens to you, guess what? The rhythm is going to change in your home and your life. I went to school years ago with a, a bunch of guys in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, when I went to that great institution called Kentucky School of Mortuary Science, uh, we had first aid training there. I don't know why that was good because we. <laughs> anyway. But there was a huge, I think it was DuPont, I, I think it was DuPont, I'm not sure, a bunch of guys. And a bunch of, the, bunch of the black guys that were there were telling me one day, I was eating lunch with them, and they were telling me about how they had worked, they worked in that plant when they weren't going to school and everything. And they, they said all these pipelines where they refined, it was a refinery, and all these pipes through there. And he, they told me simply that when they, they were there doing this, that uh, they said, they, there was a rhythm for all this stuff flowing through those pipes, just a rhythm and a rhythm and a rhythm, and said the day that that thing blew up 
and I forget, I think about 11 or 12 men were killed in that, that accident. Those guys said we were sitting there, and all of a sudden, says we, you get so used to that rhythm that you don't even hear it anymore. You don't, and says all of a sudden that rhythm changed. And says we looked at one another, and we knew we had to get out of there. We ran like crazy, and some of them didn't get out of there. When the rhythm changes, when the rhythm changes in your home, you know, and you've got to, you've got to try to say, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. It's not right. Genesis 3.8 is one of the most heartbreaking verses in the Bible when it says to us, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid themselves. You know, it's a heartbreaking verse because before sin entered the world, you have nothing to hide, no shame, no guilt, just outright joy in the presence of the Lord. And I will tell you simply because the Bible says in Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no more uh, condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. God's wanting to restore that in your life. He's wanting to restore in your life that you don't feel guilt anymore. The guilt of condemnation is gone because Jesus has paid for it all. I don't care what you've done. If you come to him, the Bible says, you know, in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord won't hear me. If you come and you've given it to me, it's gone. But you got to, here's the key. you got to come and give it to him. That's 1-9, you know, 1 John 1-9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He will do that. He will. It, God, thank God, is a forgiving God. Now what do they have? They have the understanding of nakedness and shame, and they run and they hide in the presence. They run and hide in the presence of God. Also, they made them dumb because they hid in the trees. They hid in the trees from the Creator that created everything. How dumb could you be? And then what we see is Adam. Then how's he do? He's such a man. What's he do? He throws Eve under the bus. Because listen to what he says over in chapter 3, verse, verse 9. He says, Then the Lord called Adam and said to him, you know, Where are you? And he said, I've heard your voice in the nakedness, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He, he said, who, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the tree and I ate. So he literally throwed her under the bus. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent. I always felt sorry. I sort of felt sorry for the snake. He didn't have anybody to, to blame. But, you know, and, and, and so you go on, and, and the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you've cursed more than the cattle and more of the fields, and in your bellies you, you shall eat and dust in all the days. And, and listen what he says. This is the God that we serve. We don't serve an vengeful God. We don't serve a God that's looking to hit you in the butt with a bolt of lightning. We don't serve a God that's after you. We serve, as, as Christy's saying today, well, that's the kind of God we serve. Because listen to what he says. He's already, and I will put an enmity hatred between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's he saying? He's simply saying, He's, that's the first scripture in the Bible that tells us Jesus is coming. Because what did he do? He, he affected his heel. 
What was that? That was the resurrection. Satan thought he had him. But what did Jesus do? He crushed his head. How did he crush his head? Resurrection. What are we reading in this text? It's a complete reordering of creation from the way God signed it. Here it is, what you get. Snake on its belly, stripes where you absolute peace. You're going to bruise his head. He's going to bruise your heel. Livestock, you're going to trample on him, and you are going to eat the dust of it. What you got where once there was a rhythm and shalom or peace, now you have a cosmos that's in absolute total chaos. Now you have where there was no violence, now unbelievable violence. And relational chaos was introduced when sin entered, entered the world. You know, it, it's interesting that there was no found a suitable helper for Adam, so God gives him a helpmate. Greatest gift to, uh, to a man is outside, of, outside of God is when God puts Adam to sleep in front of him and he, he brings this beautiful woman in front of him and Adam says, bone of my bone, 323, woman... And, and what woman actually means, it means this, mine. That's what Adam said, mine. He looks at a dog and a cat and a horse, and he looks at the woman and says, mine. So you got this honeymoon period, that last chapter, and then God says, who told you you were naked? And Adam says, that woman you gave me told me I was naked. You know... I don't say that, Lee. <laughs> you got to go home with your wife. You know. Did you notice that in this sin that nobody will own up to it? When we don't own up to it, we, 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 you know, and we won't own our own sins, this creates havoc in relationships. No one is ever the blame. And in Genesis 3.16, he tells them that your pain will increase. And this, I think, does not only have to do with childbirth. I think all pain is tuned up here. Turned up. And work. God created man to work. Let me say it again, especially in the time we're living in. God created man to work way before sin was entered into the world. Work is not sinful. It's actually work is actually a gift from God. When, when a man shirks his duty and doesn't provide for his family, and the kids will most always lead to other sins and some kinds of immoral behavior. The Bible says this. It says in 1 Timothy 5.8, If any man provides not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he's denied the faith, and he's worse than the infidel. And so it tells us in Genesis 3.14, death reigned. Now we have a feeling that something is not right, and... And yet Ecclesiastes, and why do we feel that way? Because the Bible tells us Ecclesiastes 3, 11, he's made everything beautiful in his time. He's also put eternity in our heart, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. And so what's he saying to us? He's saying this to us. He's put it, we know, we know that we know. Why do we come to Christ? Because we know there's something missing in our life. So in our desire to fix things that are not right, the emptiness inside, like something is missing and we try to fix things. And let me give you four things really quick and I'm going to take my seat. Here it is. First one that we try to run to and try to fix this mess that we're in, we try to run to ourselves. It's, it's hard to believe, but based upon our sketchy track records, we've thoroughly convinced ourselves that the cure for what's wrong with us is a better version of ourselves. That's not true. Somewhere in our heads, it is a future person who's the embodiment of self-discipline, self-defined perfection, ideal self who will turn our whole world upside down. 
Listen to what Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5 9 says. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart departs from the Lord. The second thing we trust in, we trust in others. We think, oh, if I could just marry her, uh, my whole life would turn up. And it does for a while. You know, because you're, you're, you have such affection for one another and you're, you're so tied into one another and you've got to listen to one another breathe and all that stuff and got to talk to one another on the phone for four hours and all that stuff. And all of a sudden it starts to wane and wane and wane. Now you're getting to the place where you really need to learn how to love one another. You know, I mean, thank God that the, the time of that, uh, you know, you're so infatuated with one another. Thank God that goes for a while. And I mean it. But I'm telling you this. If you, if you will just stay with it, you'll hang in there. And I mean it. If you'll just hang in there. The day will come when you will look over at your wife or look over at your husband and you're going to realize you just can't live without them. And you realize you look at them and you see them and you love them more than you ever thought. You may go, you know, you go through all kinds of bumps and all kinds of things in your marriage, we know that, but you look at one another and you really realize, man, but you got to fight. This is what I this is what I don't see in couples. They don't fight for one another. You know? What God has joined together, let no man put asunder, is what he says. You got to fight. You know, even though he leaves his underwear laying around, and even though, you know, and all the other crazy stuff. You know, you know, somebody say, well, you know, you know, only he leaves his underwear around. He, he, he wants to watch football all the time and everything else. Well, let me tell you something. Let me tell you, there are a number of women that says, I'd just love for my husband to come home. At least you got him home. Amen. Uh, uh, you know, uh, so I'm just simply saying it's the same thing. I, I, so others, you know, uh, you know, every relation is going to end in a struggle, fail. But you know, uh, you know, the Bible, the Bible tells us over in Psalms 146. Uh, did I give you that? I don't know whether I did or not. It says, you know, it, it says, yeah, do not put your trust in princes nor in the sons of man in whom there is no help. That's not it. Listen. If you find the love of your life, and I hope and pray that you do, if you find the love of your life, that person is not in your life to make you happy. Amen? I know that's a shock to some of you, but he's not there to do it, or she's not there to do it. Your happiness does not depend on another person. Your happiness depends upon your relationship with the Lord. Amen? Okay, good. Others. Then, and then we think the world. We think that the solution or problem is way just over the hill. Uh, but it's empty. It's an empty well. And it's a road paved with huge potholes. And this, you know, uh, and, and maybe we think we can fix the peace that we're looking for by buying new stuff, dying, uh, dying for sex, or, or that maybe that someone uh, knew this time, hoping it will calm jittery insecurities, whatever. But l listen, uh, it, it's not going to happen. But the world doesn't have what's needed to redeem us. This is why Matthew 6, 19 through 21 says, Do not lay up yourself treasures in earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. You know? 
Then the fourth and final thing is this, religion. You say, you're saying religion? Yeah, I'm saying religion. This, this can be the one of the most deceptive paths. It knows all right things to say and do all the right times. It can be cheered on and admired by well-meaning individuals and groups and churches. It could even be you leading a small group. Religion may be the most dangerous, well-drawn out, because it can appear to be life God's desire for us, but the problem is under the surface. The issue is motivation. Truthfully, religion can be just, as be, uh, just a better version of you. But Jeremiah, what is Jeremiah 2.13? For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves sister and broken sisters in this. And also Isaiah 1, and I'll just read one of this 11. For what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifice to me? Says the Lord, I have enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I do not delight in the blood of bulls and lambs. The Bible says that, that the, the people, their hearts are far from me. They honor me with their word. But their heart is far away. There's no greater example of this than Nicodemus. Prayed five, prayed five times a day, went to synagogue three times a day, and yet to that man, Jesus said, you must be born again. You know, we got a lot of, we got a lot of talking heads in the world today who talk a lot of things about what they think hell is. And Listen, I will take the words of Jesus over anybody. And that's why you need to know this book. There are going to be a lot of people going to tell you a lot of stuff that you don't want to hear, that you don't need to hear. So how we need to be reminded that we're created to be totally dependent on God. Why is the Lord wanting us to satisfy this longing of our life, this emptiness? He wants us to be real. I know I'm over time, way over probably. But you know, what, what was the story of the, fear, the seer, Phios, Phoenician woman that came to Jesus? Cyril Phoenician woman that came. And she tried to say, she said, son of David, son of David. She tried to act like she was a Jew. Jesus said, no, it says, I, I can't take the food from the, the children and give it to the dogs. He called her a dog. Why did he do that? Because she wasn't being real with him. But the moment, the moment that she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs get to eat the crumb, when she realized who, he, and, and she was willing to humble herself down and say who she really was, and Jesus did what she asked her to do. We, he just wants us to be real. Over and over again, he has told us that he will have mercy and forgiveness if we will just be who we really are. Until you're willing to admit who you really are, he won't listen. But to the person who comes just as they are, he opens his arms. Now, some people say, well, Lee, I'm afraid I can't live it. Well, let, let me just tell you, the Lord knew that. This is why he said over in Philippians 1, 7, that he who hath begun a good work in you will continue to the day of Jesus Christ. This is why he says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And the word cleanses there, what does it mean? In the Hebrew, it means, or in the Greek, it means this. He has cleansed you, he is cleansing you, and he will continue to cleanse you. Oh, what a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. And so I would just simply say to you, no one can serve, but Jesus said this. He said, nobody can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one, love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money and are the things of this world. Romans, and, and you know, Romans 14, verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Matthew 60, uh, 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 well, Matthew 6, uh, 18 says, 
seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. And what's he saying to us? What it is, what's the world looking for? They're looking for peace and joy and righteousness. And God's saying, I want to give that to you if you'll just come to me. So don't worry. Some of you are worried about certain things, even as we talked about people losing their jobs. You worry about what you shall eat, and Jesus says this, what shall you drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you have need them, but seek first the kingdom of his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. That's Matthew 6, verse 33. So let me just say this to you, and let me close this way. Why did Jesus come? There are a lot of boy, 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 people trying to tell you he's not real or whatever else. Listen, Jesus came to do one thing. John 3, 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why Jesus came? He came to save you. He didn't come to hurt you. Or he didn't come to make you feel bad. He came to, to put you back into that rhythm that God wants you to have. And finally, he says, John 10, 10, he said, I came to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. Are you experiencing that life? Are you? Now, somebody says, well, you know, Lee, I, I, I came to know the Lord when I was younger, and that's fine. But do you know that you know you know him? You know, the Apostle Paul, this is that great man of God, and here's what he said. He said one time, and this is over in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, uh, verse 10. And he said, can you put that up there, Philippians 3, 10? Now, this... Yeah, Philippians 3.10. Can you put it up there? I hate technology. Here it is. Look at what Paul said. I think this was the theme of his life. Now this, you know, it's inter interesting that Paul says, some of you that are, you've come to give your heart to the Lord. But listen, Paul in 57 AD, what did he say? He says, I'm the least, uh, he, he says, I'm the least of all the apostles. Then he comes and he says in 59 A.D., I'm the least of all the brethren. And what's he say in 71 A.D.? I'm the chief of sinners. Was he getting worse? No. He's getting closer to the Lord than he ever was. But what, the closer you get to God, the more he's going to do this to you. He's going to put his fingers, give me this, hey, give me that, give me that. Just like you do with your kids. Hey, give me that. You don't need that in your mouth. Give me that. Give, give, give it to me. That's what he's doing. He does the very same thing with you. But Paul wrote this. He said that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. Do you know him in such a way the power of the resurrection dwells in you and the fellowship of his sufferings? That, that's the other thing. You know, when you start really getting wanting to know him, the devil show up and all kinds of other ugly people show up too. Fellowship of suffering, being conformed to his death. Man, Lord wants you to know him he wants you to walk with him. He wants you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when people look at you and say, who are you? You're not going to say, well, I'm so-and-so or I'll work here, do this. Well, you're going to say, I'm a born-again child of God. That's who I am. Amen? We're going to sing a verse of invitation. And I hope.